sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. I think there is an excitement, at least for me, in working with some of these newer people that are going into the selling profession. They're just taking it much more like a profession, not just a job. And I think that's exciting. They, they want to know all the tools that are going to make them better. They do all the homework. They just do things maybe a lot different than we did in the past. And, and that part's actually very positive. The only item I would add is the market has changed, has made the sales reps change in our industry which has made the sales reps more valuable to their clients. So it's not always perfect. There are clients that really that still don't respect their sales reps, but there are lots of clients that really respect their sales reps and build long-standing relationships in our space. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Mark Petruzzi and Paul Melchior. And together, they are the co-authors of a book titled Selling the Cloud, a playbook for success in cloud software and enterprise sales. And today, in our wide-ranging conversation, we explore the current and future states of selling software to the enterprise. We dig into why Mark and Paul believe that increasingly, software sales are all about relationships. We explore why they believe that the sales stereotypes of yesterday are evolving for the positive, then we dive into a number of topics, including why an anti-no culture has become so prevalent in sales and the negative impact that that has, including sellers becoming afraid of being labeled non-salesy. I mean, I agree with Mark and Paul. Being labeled non-salesy or being afraid of being labeled non-salesy is just crazy because shouldn't being non-salesy be the goal for all sellers? <laughs> yes. Okay, and we get into why Mark and Paul believe there is no such thing as closing and what that means for sellers. So we get into all of this and much, much more. But before we get to Mark and Paul, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And I also want to remind you to check out my latest book, Sell Without Selling Out. It's a modern human-centric framework that every seller can use to succeed in sales by helping their buyers achieve the things that are most important to them. It's available everywhere you shop for books, online, and in stores, so thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Mark and Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Andy. Great to be here. Yeah, so good to have you here. And uh, you're joining us from where today? Paul, I know where you are. Yeah, I'm actually on vacation here in Park City with the kids, so taking time away from the slopes to hang out with you, Wow, thank you. Time from vacation to come on the show. I really feel honored by that. Yes. Go. And Mark? Yeah. And, I, and 
So I am in Charlotte, home for me, North Carolina, waiting for the jet to be sent to pick me up to bring me to Park City with Paul, but it hasn't come yet. <laughs> that's, that's so funny. It hasn't showed up yet. Yeah. Uh, well, Oda have friends that are, have jets, right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, to have friends who have jets who send them to pick you up. To pick you up even. Yeah, yeah. Nothing worse than friends who are stingy with their jets. So, yes. There you go. I wish. Yeah, I wish. Right. Yeah. American Airlines. Yeah. Mine's, yeah, mine's jet blue. So, um, all right. Well, so tell us a bit about yourselves. So we're going to talk about your book uh, coming up. But uh, before you jump, dive into that, tell me what you guys are up to. Uh, Paul, lead us off. Yeah. Hey, uh, thanks again, Andy, for having us. Uh, I'm currently working at a company called Stripes. It's a venture growth uh, equity firm in New York City, and we specialize both in the consumer space as well as the SaaS software space. So I've been doing that for a little over two and a half years and, and realized how much fun that was versus being an operational <laughs> executive for 37 years right. and doing real, real work. Yeah. So it's... Uh, it, it's definitely a lot of fun, and, and the ability to do operational work with ten or fifteen portfolio firms, and uh, you know, helping them in their go-to-market and their strategies is is really a rewarding uh, profession, if you will. And it's 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 actually been a lot of fun. But uh, prior to that, like I said, you know, my entire life in enterprise software, starting really early on uh, when SAP started in mm-hmm. the U.S. in Philadelphia. I just fortunately we happened to be living a few miles away from their, you know, first headquarters and uh, rode that wave through the 90s. Uh, It was a great experience watching a small software company really at the time become a small country. So it was a great run and then transitioned that into, you know, pre-revenue through IPO experience at Ariba for almost 13 or 14 Mm -hmm. years on and off there. And that was a lot of fun, especially as we took it full circle, went through the dot-com crash, which if anyone's lived through that, oh, yeah. uh, what we're dealing with now is nothing, believe me. And, uh, you know, we sold that to SAP and did some work at a private equity firm for a company called iPipeline. We sold that off to uh, Tomo Bravo and then uh, went to, to go work at Anaplan in late 2015, took them public, and then left uh, late 19, just before COVID, to join Stripe. So it's been a great run in the enterprise software space, primarily in go-to-market uh, mm-hmm. roles and um, you know now using and leveraging that skill set to, to work with new young companies that are you know trying to grow and and it's like I said it's been a lot of fun great and mark a bit about you awesome so I am a I'm a strategy consultant by training I'm coming out of my out of business school going right into a firm called the Mac group which was a, a Harvard-based firm that was frankly the only firm uh, only boutique firm that I've ever seen be able to run some circles around the MBBs, McKinsey, Bain, and BCG. Mm-hmm. And um, they they really only were able to do it for about two and a half years, if three years, and then they were pretty much neutralized by those bigger competitors. Um, but it was a good run. And fortunately for me, it was the time that I was there coming out of business school. I went completely in and right into operating roles at that point. Um, you know, early, early 10 years at Deloitte as a managing director and um, also at, uh, at Oracle. So really went back and forth between 
the consulting side and then working directly on the software side. And it gave me the opportunity to work with some of the the most amazing sales reps and sales and and sales leaders mm-hmm. like uh, like Paul and it was you know put me in a situation to be able to really uh, learn a lot about the sales process while selling within the team but also learning from some of the best software enterprise software executives uh, on the planet um, and today I do I'm back to more strategy consulting doing a lot Got of it. sales transformation work um, now with BCG on a, an expert advisory type role and some other um, some other companies as well so really happy to be here and thank you again Andy yeah well my pleasure um, so we're gonna talk about the book that you two co-authored called selling the cloud a playbook for success in cloud software and enterprise sales. So what was the impetus to write the book? Well, I got to say, I got to give Mark a lot of the credit because I took notes for 30 something years and I always wanted to do this and I would have never really done it on my own just because I just didn't have the impetus to go through the process Mm -hmm. of putting something from notebooks. And I'm still old school. I keep those old notebooks. I go into meetings even today and I pull out a notebook. People look at me like, you know, what's grandpa doing over there? Uh, but I did. I just wrote everything down for 30 something years and had these piles and piles of books. And, you know, Mark said, hey, we, we should do this. We should do it. And, um, you know, he, he finally got me off snide to do it. And uh, it, it was a lot harder, I got to say, than than I thought. I, I thought it was something where we would just do a bunch of interviews and put some stuff down on paper and, and publish a book. And, and I realized <laughs> there's a lot more to that process. Uh, than, than I knew about for sure. And so the title, where's that come from? Cause I, I mean, I was reading the book. It seems, you know, that it's a good, yeah, really good general purpose sales book. So what's, what's specific about the cloud? Yeah. I mean, the cloud was mainly about where our whole, our entire career has gone to. It is like many things, many technologies, our career has gone to the cloud and uh, I guess we can we can thank uh, Mark Benioff for doing that and and really leading it, um, and even some people like Scott Share, who's the founder of Ultimate Software, who moved, mm-hmm. was one of the earliest movers to a a SaaS based model. Um, but you're exactly right. I mean, we looked at it, and and everything we did was. Uh, and everything we've done in our career has been very general, right? For any B2B, complex B2B selling model. The difference is as well is we had to feel the, and experience the change of how enterprise selling occurred back 15, 20, 25 years ago to how you had to sell once it was a subscription model. And the, everything that Paul and I were doing 25 years ago Everybody now had to do, meaning building longstanding relationships, making decisions that may hurt us short term, but help us long term. All of those things, lots of enterprise sales leaders did not think of. There were people at Oracle and even at SAP as well that didn't make those decisions the way Paul made those decisions in his career. So that's why it was so relevant to be selling the cloud and focused on SaaS. Okay. So diving into the book. So one of the things you guys write is you say that the sales stereotypes of yesterday are evolving. And I found that interesting because 
Yeah, I'm not sure I'd buy that. So what 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 makes you think that's the case? <laughs> yeah, I'll let Mark expand on it because that's part of the controversial feedback that we got from yeah. some folks in and I thought, you know, we didn't think of it to be controversial. We just when we've been in the selling profession, literally I started right out of college and that's all I've ever done. So for me, sure, me I too. watched this ev- yeah, I watched this evolution. And I think when you mentioned the title of Selling the Cloud, I saw that evolution change dramatically in that mid-2000 timeframe when companies like Salesforce were just getting started. Myself at Ariba, we started as an on-prem, traditional SAP type of enterprise software environment. Mm-hmm. And then we're forced to move you know, to a subscription model to the cloud. I think it was us, Concur, uh, Adobe. There was a few other uh, companies that, that had to go through that transition. And you're seeing companies like Splunk. And others now having to go through it, and it wasn't easy, right? So that evolution, I thought, left a lot of, I'll call it my my peer group, um, in a different time zone, right? I mean, they just, you know, it was like the twilight zone. They just never evolved to what the profession, profession demands today. I think the easiest way to sum it up is when we started way back, all three of us, I guess, you know, selling was way more art than science. Today, selling is probably way more science than art, right? And so there has been a, a major transition. Some of the stereotypes are still around. Some of them, you know, have transitioned. And, and I think there is a, a, an excitement, at least for me, in working with some of these newer uh, for people that are going into the selling profession. They're just taking it much more like a profession, not just a job. And, and I think that's exciting. They, they want to know all the tools that's going to make them better. They do all the homework. They just do things maybe a lot different than we did in the past. And, and that part's actually very positive. Mark, what's your take? Yeah, I mean, I think that was well articulated. The, the only item I would add is the, um, so as Paul described it, the market has changed, has made the sales reps change in our industry, which has made the sales reps more valuable to their clients. So it's not always perfect. There are, there are clients that really still don't respect their sales reps. There are clients that, that um, would still look at the profession at a very low level. But there are, there are lots of clients that really respect their sales reps and build long-standing relationships in our space. And, and that may not be the case across sales, but in SaaS and cloud, that, that has evolved positively. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. So the, the, the counter to that, not that I accept the counter necessarily, but you know, Gartner comes out with research in the last year or so saying, you know, 80% of buyers, you know, would prefer to buy without salespeople, which, which again, I don't, I don't, I don't accept on the face of it, but because I think there's a big caveat to that, but also you combine, you combine that with, with, you know, industry reports talking about specifically about the SaaS industry, talking about low quota attainments, uh, low win rates. And to me, win rates are the ultimate referendum on the buyer's experience with sellers. So to me, it's like the data such as is, you know, just taking on face value for a second, sort of pointing in the opposite direction, saying that actually we're not getting better. Yeah, let me let me try to take that from a where the market is, especially with the advent of some of these newer, I'll call them product-led growth companies. Yeah. So if you think about companies that 
you know, allow you to go on to a website, put your credit card in, start to try and buy the product. It, it's a very different selling experience than sure. the traditional way. So I think in that, Gartner's very right in that if I'm a developer and I want to go look at new development tools, probably the last person I want to talk to is a salesperson, right? In that that way. But when you know hundreds of developers are now using this particular capability, I can assure you that the procurement organization and a Fortune 50 company wants to talk to a salesperson because now this thing is proliferated maybe even out of control in the organization. So I think there are, you know, differences in the types of products within certain industries that maybe the value of direct selling is maybe handled better by indirect selling or by, you know, kind of a technical support line, especially in these what I call product-led growth. But when you get into sophisticated business applications, cybersecurity, things that are very confusing, I think it really does make a difference to have a quality uh, enterprise type sales rep that understands the customer needs, that can really help be an advisor to the customer. And, and here's the problem I think today is because the market's grown so fast, there's just a supply and demand issue. And I think you're right. Some of these folks are being thrown into sales roles without enablement, without any background experience, and therefore their ability to succeed is questionable, which is a lot of reasons why I think we put this book together, because there's so many people now that are coming into our business, and very few of them are going through formal enablement and training programs. And we figured this was just a good baseline to get people to think about, you know, the role that they're going to be playing in these organizations, especially selling in, in the B2B complex space, uh, what they're going to need as a primer, if you will. And, and I think, you know, as Gartner may say, you know, 80%, you know, you don't need salespeople. I think that's more dependent upon the type of product and who you're selling it to. Yeah, I, I think they're, yeah. I mean, to some degree, I agree. I think there's a different statement they're making, though, the the people they talk to, which is, to your, your original point about the evolving stereotypes of sellers, is what those people are saying is, we have time for sellers who can help us get our job done, i.e. help us make a decision. But if you can't help us in that task, then yeah, we don't have time for you. I and, agree with them. And so yeah. yeah, other analyst reports come out as well saying, you know, I actually quote one in my new book is is I think it was Forster, it may have been from Gartner saying, you know, 80% of C level executives saying they get no value from talking to salespeople. So I think that that's what I said. This the stereotype, I think the stereotype is actually is persists for a reason. Yeah. Well, I think I think Andy, when what you're pulling out there is is important. Um, you know, the stereotype is is persistent. Um, but I guess there's a couple points that we're we're saying in the book. We're not saying we need more sales reps than we have today. Um, we're really we're not commenting that. You know, matter of fact, one of the reasons we did the book is because there are lots of sales reps in our industry that are that are under quota attainment and uh, and more than probably should be. So that's that's a hit on sales leadership, sales management, um, because they're they're not really balancing out 
the, uh, the, the quotas and everything appropriately. Um, and I will go a step further. I'm a big believer. So I, I agree with the, the premise that we're describing, that although I think sales is an incredible career, and I think somebody coming out of college now should not shy away from sales, um, these opportunities are not going to disappear um, because of robotics and artificial intelligence. Um, however, there is going to be, um, I think, and I advise lots of my clients to, to look at it differently. We don't need these super expensive outside sales teams that we needed in the past to the level that we've invested in in the past. There, is, there are ways to leverage technologies, um, sales tech, to be able to, to bring younger individuals, maybe do inside sales groups, um, build that internally, use outsourcers for that. There are all these great things. You know, come up with strategies that maybe it will f- force you to need less sales rate reps like PLG, product-led growth. I mean, there's all these great ideas that we, we tried to bring forward in the book. Um, so I think in general, the, um, I think the sales reps in our industry that are successful are the ones that have clients that would, would argue against those stereotypes. That if they heard that, they would say, well, no, not Paul, no, not, not my sales rep. That's something that, and we're trying to help it there to be more of Pauls out there and less of those individuals that earn their stereotypes. Yeah, no, I agree. That's, that's, yeah, like a lot of what I read in your book, because it, yeah, aligns with some of the same points I make in in my new book is, is, but I want to touch on something you, I think Paul, you'd brought up, which is, you know, I think sort of the root of the problem is the lack of enablement of management frontline management in particular in sales. Yeah. And absolutely. Yeah. We talk about this idea of, of, yeah, where we read the reports from CSO insights or Bravado or wherever about, you know, so few sellers achieving quota. Isn't that really a management issue? It's absolutely a management issue, Andy. And I think if you think back, you know, when I started in the business, I was very fortunate to have incredible frontline leadership, great, executive support, you know, companies put money into developing uh, their sales reps. I mean, I started out at ADP right out of college and, you know, they didn't put me in front of a territory for almost a year, right? They trained me for a year and I work with great frontline managers. You go into one of these companies today and you're not getting that. You're, you're, you know, here's uh, you know, one week enablement, uh, Here's your radio and an extra battery go behind the enemy lines and good luck selling, right? And then you're unfortunately dealing with a real shortage of good frontline managers who know how to manage, right? Most of your frontline managers today, at least in the space that, that you know, Mark and I are in, in enterprise software, I mean, th- these folks, they hire fire forecasts. They, they really don't have time to mentor and train and do the things that are required to support these newer reps coming into these roles and helping them grow. And if you think about a lot of the companies that have been successful versus not, and the ones who have scaled, I can assure you one of the common denominators is they had strong frontline management and they had decent ratios of sales reps to managers. So if you've got right. six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven 10, reps reporting to a manager, I mean, I, I just imagine having 11 teenage kids, right? 
uh, you couldn't do it, right? But if you have sure. three or four or five, maybe max is a good ratio, uh, then I think you have the right balance of being able to assist that individual in their career, training and mentoring them as you're going along, going on calls with them, as opposed to what happens today with the ratios being out of whack or with just a just a lack of good frontline managers. All they're doing is asking you for the same forecast information four or five day, days a week. Right. But isn't isn't the issue, though? It's It's not the individuals in those roles is the fact that they aren't supported. They aren't right. enabled. Yeah. yeah. They're given the title yeah. without, without given the, I said the support they need, mm-hmm. the coaching they need. Yep. So it's funny. I was just having this conversation a little bit earlier on, on another uh, podcast was, yeah, the problem really starts at the top. It does. Right. It's is quite honestly is, is in a lot of these companies and especially experience once you talk about is the people at the top, yeah, really don't care about sales in the same. This, I'm talking about the the department. Not they care about revenues, obviously, but they they are trying to skimp and they're trying to save yep. and they're trying to shortchange. Yep. And what happens, I think, and we see this in a lot of SaaS companies, even some that are successful, mm-hmm. is that you know win rates out qualified opportunities are in the. Yeah, I was talking to one last week that was you know low teens. Mm-hmm which is an extreme, but they're generally in the low twenties. So it's saying is we've got these sales organizations developing that can't are the most highly qualified opportunities can only close one out of four, one out of five. Yeah. And I, and I don't think that's going to be sustainable long-term because what's no. happened is so much money's being put into companies with the amount of investment that's out there. So of course these companies take these dollars and maybe at the top, they just don't take it seriously. They just throw a bunch of money at a problem or when they start seeing the money's not flowing in as quickly. They stop putting money into in investing. And if I look at a lot of the companies that, you know, we look at um, that we don't invest in, you can see they're underinvested in sales operations, sales enablement. The ratios are way out of whack. And you just start scratching your head and like, where are they spending all this money? You know, because they're spending it. Yeah, they're spent. Well, they're spending at the top of funnel. Yeah. Right. I mean, you've got you've got advocates in the VC community saying, Screw win rate. Right. It's just about yeah. deal, it's just about deal flow. Volume, right? It's yeah. just about volume, deal flow. And it's like, okay, well, that may be. But to the point you made, Paul, which I think is the right point, is uh, okay. What you're doing then is you're just reducing yourself to basically playing the odds, mm-hmm. right? Because you know if you put enough <laughs> enough crap in the top of the funnel, you're going to close a certain small mm-hmm. percentage of them. But then when the shit hits the fan and things go south, the economy gets yep. tough. We have another bubble burst. Yep. If you don't actually know how to sell, you're in trouble. Bingo. Yep. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, the VCs continue to just, you know, pour a bunch of money into these companies. And I think if you've seen the market the last couple of you know, months, there's definitely a tend towards being a little more capital efficient. Maybe is that a that used to be a bad word? Uh, I think that's going to continue to be more of a focus. And I think, you know, I start seeing questions being asked around sales effectiveness, sales efficiency, you know, pipeline coverage, quality of pipeline, all the things that have been around for, you know, 100 years. Uh, But now they're actually starting to get focused because if you just can't give unlimited amounts of money to just generate some growth number so that you can get your next round of money or you can get bought. Um, I think that's going to change the approach and companies are going to have to look at sales efficiency. How do they 
go to market or they go into market in the most efficient manner. And you'd be surprised. There's just not enough, you know, in my opinion, sales leaders that, that understand what to do, let alone if they were, you know, in the position. And that's causing a lot of these challenges, if you will. I really believe that, like you said, it starts at the top. It's not these, these individuals coming into the profession. They are way smarter than we were. I could guarantee you that they work hard. They'll figure out things yep. that, I mean, they're really a smart generation and they're personable, right? I mean, they, they want to communicate, they want to work with, and they have a, a true empathy for, for customers. So I think that the raw material that's coming out of college and coming into the workforce is, I think, absolutely fantastic. I think our challenge is we don't know what to do with that raw material because we have a, a lack of investment in enablement, in training, in, in operations. And then, you know, you set up that front line and, and really even at the top of the sales leadership is is something that needs to improve. Well, and, and you you point out is, is, yeah, supposedly they don't have time to coach because they're so focused on the metrics yep. and KPIs and, and enforcing compliance with whatever process yep. du jour they think is the right process. You know, the the you know overwhelming response to my book coming out is is seller saying because I advocate very strongly as as you need to and you guys talk about this as well in your book is you need you need to sell in alignment with your values and who you are as a human mm-hmm. being and if your manager is not enabling you to do that then you have two two choices push back or find a yeah. different situation yeah. yeah and Andy the the good news here though that the the market fixes itself right I mean, we're in the middle of the great resignation. And if there's a great resignation across the board, it's it's triple the intensity in, in sales. If you're good in sales, you're good at sales, you will, you know, right now, and you're getting you're not getting allowed to do what, what you describe in your book as you mentioned in you know, sell without selling out. If you feel like you're being forced to sell out. You pick up the phone, you call Paul or you call me and you say, hey, I'm looking at, I got to get out of here. Who, you know, who should I talk with? And, you know, it's 12 seconds later, we're, we're introducing them to, to five other people and they have three offers. So, you know, that's, that's how these, the, I do believe the market does fix itself over time. Um, and I do believe if you look why this has happened, it's, it's starting at the top. It's actually starting above the top with the VCs and the, and the private mm-hmm. equity firms driving this behavior. And guess what? It even started higher than that with the amount of liquidity we flooded into the, the, uh, you know, the systems from the Federal Reserve and Federal Reserves throughout the world. You put all that out there, you throw money out there. Of course, people are going to react by just saying, all right, what's my job as a venture capitalist? Well, my job is to grab money out of one basket as fast as I can, run it to somebody else's basket, and then throw it in there and then run to a third person and say, how much will you buy this basket for? That's all that's happened the last few years. Right. But isn't, isn't there somewhere in here, though, is I'm just curious, you guys, in your experience, because I certainly haven't encountered many individuals who have done this, you know, CEOs taking the money to sort of stand up and say, yeah, this playbook you want us to run that you enforce all your your portfolio companies to run. Yeah, it's bullshit. It's not sustainable, to your point, Paul. Yeah. I mean, it may get me to an exit, but beyond that, 
Yeah, and I think as we go and time goes on, and that's why I like, you know, not to plug for stripes, but we don't make tons of investments. So we're very particular about where we're putting the money. We're not this giant fund. And and we are looking at it at a longer time horizon. And, And I think those were the principles years ago. I think they're out the window now. I think because there's so much money, as Mark said, that there's so much activity and you have to deploy that capital. Yeah, you can't just sit on it and collect 2%, right? So you have to deploy it. And therefore, I think you just over-deploy right. or you see companies are, you know, the CEO is just trying to get to the next round at the higher valuation to put him or her in a better position and not really thinking, is this a five to 10-year horizon that I'm thinking about or a, you know, 12 to 18-month horizon? And I think that's where the disconnect is. And, you know, fortunately for the companies who have amazing products, who have, you know, the, the cultural values that, that uh, they believe in, you know, who have the right go-to-market strategies who are capital efficient, you know, they're going to be around in the long run. And the ones that are in this kind of hype cycle, uh, you know, you see it all the time when you go through that cycle, some of these folks just don't survive or they get sucked up into other companies or, you know, they run out of money. And, and so we will see a lot of that over the next 12, 18, 24 months where capital will start to dry up for some of the firms that don't deserve to get more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like there needs to be a correction of sorts for sure. Um, Cause I, I think that, that my senses from all the folks that I talked to and you guys, you know, talk to some are more impressed people than I do in that, but it's just like people still feeling compelled to sort of follow this, this playbook. And it's just, the growth at all costs mentality seems to be ebbing away more slowly than I think it should be. Yeah. I think we, uh, Paul and I agree. Yeah. So, and that growth at all costs mentality is, is generates a lot of the bad sales behaviors that we both address in our books. Um, <laughs> so, uh, it does keep, there you does go. Keep consultants employed. Um, yeah. Well, it's interesting. You're talking about the, the young generation coming into sales. And I agree. I mean, I think that, that, yeah, all this generational talk about you know young people coming into the profession today are different than they were. Yeah, you know, I don't. Know, I hate all the intergenerational intergenerational talk because I think it's all all BS. But um, but I did I heard an interesting story this this week because you know talking about selling in alignment with who you are, and you refer to that. I do as well. And I was talking to a woman named Don Dieter Schmelz who runs the. National Strategic Selling Institute at Kansas State University. So she's basically dean of the sales program at Kansas State, which is one of the first prominent uh, universities to offer a undergraduate degree in sales. And she was telling me a story about uh, when she teaches her first you know, entry-level sales course, Introduction to Professional Selling, I think it is. And she does role-playing is – with the freshmen who have no background sales, she said they default to being super salesy <laughs> when, when she does the role plays. And, and it's just, yeah, it makes me think it's like, okay, well, where does this come from? Right. Is, is, you know, we both write about how important it is to sell, you know, align with our values and who we are. So where does it come from that people have no background sales at all aspiring to be in it? think that they need to put on this salesy act to be a salesperson. Interesting. Maybe it's part of that stereotype 
that, you know, I agree it, it stereotypes, you know, as these kids are coming into college and it's great that Kansas state has a program because I was always amazed throughout the years, you know, everybody could major in marketing, but you, there was no undergraduate for selling. And then everybody would, <laughs> you know, graduate, right. They graduate, well, you know, graduate marketing, go, go to sales jobs. So it, it was amazing to me that uh, that never you know really took off, but I think it's great that some of the programs, you know, you mentioned, and, and I'm sure she's done a great job to get that going. And then I think that's part of the, the, the challenge in training these folks as they come in. They don't know what to expect, right? Uh, they're coming in with a maybe a perceived stereotype. And then, and, and, you know, it's interesting. When we wrote this book, you know, I said, well, who's our audience, right? Is it the experienced sales reps, people trying to, you know, get into sales? We, we were surprised. You know, we never did a, you know, college tour because of COVID hit, of course, like right then and there. But right. it was surprising. We we got a lot of feedback from young first time sellers, like a couple years out of college, and really mm-hmm. enjoyed having you know that as a baseline for them. And that's where we said, you know what, maybe this is really geared to an audience. We tried to make it as broad as possible, but I never really thought about the audience being these new generation of salespeople. And I, and I think not objectively, of course, because it's our book, but I just thought that this would be a great. You know, I hate to use the word playbook and, you know, it's not about the process and, and there's so many methodologies out there. In fact, I'll give you an example. Every time I went into a company, right. I asked them what their methodology was and I used it. I said, look, they're all the same. They were all stolen from people 30 years ago and they just put different veneers on them. And as long as you're using it yep. and there is a process to enforce it and to make sure it's accurate, then we'll use whatever is in place because to switch them. And you'd be surprised. I come into organizations where, oh, I'm going to put my new sales processes. No, no, just use what they have and just make sure they're using it. And and that's why I thought we didn't want to do that type of a book. But I think given folks that are coming into the profession, kind of a baseline of what it is that these advanced buyers are looking for. And I think you said it, you know, when I started Ariba, buyers were a completely different profile. Today, the buyers probably know more about your product, your company, than the sales reps that they're talking to. So maybe that's why the 80% feel, you know, I'm going to have somebody come in here and tell me about my company and I, you know, I know more than they do. That's why it's important to be prepared and go in and add value in those conversations because then you get put in the 20%. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, yeah. I, yes, I think sellers, for the most part, don't understand what it means to provide value to their, their buyers today. I mean, there's for I think for some you know large percentage of them they've been brought up. It's like, oh, it's this piece of content, right? It's what the content that's that represents value, as opposed to really understanding what it is the buyer needs at that point in time to make progress or make and I've a decision. I've always said the deals are won and lost, and I can't remember what chapter, but in what I call the discovery phase of a cycle. So if you're asking the right questions. You're really probing to understand where that need is uh, and really understand that the client's pain, if you will, and then can attack that with your solution. It's as simple as that. And that's where you gain the credibility, where if you're not listening, you're not learning, you're not really discovering, this is the product you have. You show up with that product. You know, it's like, I have a hammer. Everything looks like a nail. And, you know, I used to call it the, hey, I just want to go demo. Well, what are you demoing? I want to demo our product. It's so great. Well, do you know why they're going to use it, how they're going to use it? No. Well, maybe you should find that out first, then do the demo. Oh, yeah. Great idea. (laughs) But but that's that's what informs so much of software sales these days. 
And, you know, I talk about this in my book. I said, you know, is this fundamental misunderstanding of what sales is. Because if you ask most salespeople, as I do when I speak to groups and so on, it's, you know, what's, what's your job as a seller? The majority answer is to persuade somebody to buy my product. And I talk about it in my book. I said, well, no. <laughs> your job as a seller is to listen to your buyer, to understand what are the most important things to them in terms of the challenges they face and the, the outcomes they want to achieve, and then help them get that. That's your job. And if you think your job is persuasion-based, it's just as you said, yeah, you're selling hammers and everybody's a nail. You don't, you don't care, really. You, don't, you think it's a bother, really, to understand what's really important to them because you just have one mission. It's to sell your product. I think that's right on. So question for you on, on uh, I love this part you wrote about a, um, I know, let's, let's finish up on discovery. I'm sorry, I just jumped ahead, but is, I agree with you 100% on discovery being the most important part. And I, and I tell the story to illustrate to people, is, is, at least from my experience, why it's so important is when I first came out of college, I was in the Bay Area, I was selling computer systems back when computers were most of a room full of equipment. Uh, with accounting applications to the construction industry. As 21 years old, I looked <laughs> 16 and I was talking to CEOs and you know founders of construction companies, you know, road construction, large home builders, and they gave me time. And I finally began to understand I was earning that time because I was asking, I was really interested in them, right? Even though I didn't know diddly squat about business at that point is they're willing to give their time to serve, teach me how to sell to them. As long as I was asking interesting, interested questions. Yeah. And you know what, Andy, what's, what's amazing about that is we all know how important the, the information is that you get by asking, uh, you know, interesting, you know, interesting and interested questions. So the data is important, the information is important, but the process is important and probably just as important. That discovery process, when done well, is an incredible mechanism for building a relationship and getting to know someone. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you know how it works when, if you, you know, years back when we all, you know, were on dates rather than with our wives of many years, we... Um, you know, if we would sit there and immediately jump down at a table and start talking all about us and our background and and uh, everything we've done in the, the 19 years before that, um, because we're, you know, much younger at that point, the we're not going to build much of a relationship to start. But if mm -hmm. you go in there and you're really intrigued and excited to get to know that person better and you, you, you know, you ask the right questions, you build a relationship. So I think that's part of the discovery process as well. And I would venture to say as important as the information you get along the way as well. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And I think the other thing that's overlooked with discovery is that you are communicating information and insights about your product through the questions you ask. Yeah. And then... And Oh, and okay. I think that that's just overlooked is, is that so often sellers are equipped with the playbook and their list of questions and they go ask the questions and sort of like survey taking to some degree. But yeah, questions are, yeah, discovery is a two-way street. 
And if you're intentional about that, then it becomes very powerful, as you described. Yeah, it's got to be real. It's got to be authentic. And it's amazing. I mean, think about it. None of this hasn't changed. Um, 25 years ago, there were sales reps that Paul and I worked with that you could just tell. They just thought sales was one thing. It was just they would go there. They'd want to they'd talk. They'd want to share. They'd, you know, when they acted like they were listening, they weren't listening. They were actually just thinking of the next thing that, you know, right. that they were going to, the next smart thing that they were going to say. That's all they did. Um, and I see that today with sales reps today. I mean, there are some people that just come in and I don't know if it's movies they watched or books they read, um, but it's, you know, they come in there and they think they have to be a robot. They think they have to be perfect and precise and, and share information. And it's as, you know, we're, we're, proven examples of you don't have to be perfect you don't have to be precise all the time you do have to be authentic you do have to be caring you do have to mm -hmm. be all the things that matter in a in a spouse and in life matter in a sales rep that's it it's as simple as that you have to be credible you have to be honest that's what we wanted to express in the book yeah no i i agree i agree um yeah i, I, I Tell people you know, if you if you know how to make a friend, that's how you approach a buyer. Yeah. Uh, so not that you want to be friends with them, heaven forbid, because yeah. their people go crazy thinking that sellers want to be friends with their their buyers. Which, but you do want to be friendly. Yeah, um, I agree. Now, one thing, another thing I really liked in your book was talking about the anti no culture, and. Uh, with the time we have left, I want to talk about that because I think I think that was a great part. So tell us what you mean by an anti-no culture. Yeah, so there's there's a couple of things. Um, I, I don't recall if I kept this in the book, but I actually wrote an article many years ago that was entitled. Actually, I don't think we kept it. It was entitled "No Means No," yeah. which is is um, I think we lost it because somebody along the way. Didn't feel comfortable. That was maybe a little too, uh, you know, we didn't want to turn this into a whole different thought process. But the point is, no means no. And I've seen that throughout my whole career. There, there are individuals that I've worked with that are as amazing as Paul, you know, in, in a CRO role, in a sales leader role. And there are people that that struggled along the way with that at different companies that I had to work with nonetheless, Right. And I saw this over and over again. There was this process of the sales reps gets a, gets a no. It goes up to the sales manager. It goes up to the sales VP and straight up to the you know sales leader. wasn't called the CRO back then. And then everybody started screaming back and forth and calling the buyer and and tell well, calling the sales rep and say, you know, tell them this, tell them this, lower our price, lower that. Guess what? No means no. And if anything, what you should be doing is immediately picking up the phone and saying, you know, as as the sales leader, you know, hey, you know, we're really disappointed we lost. And but we really want to thank you for considering us and and spending the time with us. And maybe at some point you even want to set up a a, a debrief call where you can maybe ask, you know, a little bit of what what happened along the way. 
But what you don't want to be doing is all of those steps I just described. And then the worst of all, there were amazingly successful sales leaders that would pick up the phone <laughs> and scream on the other side of the phone of, with that buyer, with that prospect of why they, 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 they're making a big mistake. They're offended. They, they, you guys screwed me, for lack of another word to, to mm -hmm. describe it. I mean, where does what is that? What value is it in that? And it's just amazing that, you know, and and that doesn't happen as much today. It probably happened more in the earlier days. It still happens. But it, well, it, it still happens. happens today. It, it still yeah. happens. But, but also, but also, it's it's yeah. I was interpreting that not just as a no in terms of the buying decision, but just a no, right? Is is yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm. I wrote a very similar post about no meaning no. Uh, a few years ago on LinkedIn and got this sort of outpouring of, of comments where the general gist of about a third of them was, what, what are you talking about? No means double down, <laughs> sell harder. <laughs> it's like, seriously, right? This is, this is, yeah. and this is, you know, this is the problem. And it's, it's, you talk about it in the book, you talk about, you know, people are afraid mm -hmm. of being labeled as being non-salesy. Yeah. And it's like, are you kidding? That yep. should be your goal as a salesperson to be labeled as non-salesy. You know, it's, it's like, you know, I ask the question in the book and I use it when I speak in public too, is, you know, a question the buyer will never ask you is, you know, Hey, Paul, love your product. I think we want to buy your product, but I just don't think we can because yeah. friend, Paul, you're not salesy enough. Could you well, be more salesy? When you have that kind of an opportunity, you got to jump on it, I guess. Oh. But the reality is, and I think there's a great story that I told in the book about kind of this no situation where, you know, everybody got upset. Like Mark described, it's almost the exact same situation this is a real life example. And, you know, I called up very nice because I just knew this company, this company could come back. It's a big giant company. And I didn't think, you know, Oracle can do mm -hmm. the job. And of course I was with SAP, so I wasn't objective. And sure enough, a year later I get a call and the guy says, look, uh, things didn't work out. And, you know, just promise you won't tell me you told me so. And um, I don't want to see that <laughs> rep back here. And he named him by name anymore. And I need you to be in here right. next week. And we want to sign a contract within a couple of days, which is a, a very, very large contract with a defense contractor. I said, so, well, right. you know, I got a different job now. So I do have to bring someone else in. Uh, and we got the deal closed in a week. And, and I always look back at that and I tell people, Look, you got to lose with grace. And, and as a sales rep, you should be this winning attitude because it's hard because you're going to hear a lot of no. You're going to probably hear 80% no before you get yes. And, and that's the challenge with the profession. But you just got to understand you get, can't get too high on the highs, too low on the lows. I think that's a sports analogy from some coach. I stole that. But it's true. And I think, you know, when people get upset, they just they want to say double down. And it's probably the last thing you want to do is you want to sit back and reflect why aren't they, you know, buying what I'm selling? Is it something about me or maybe just they don't need it. Right. You know? And so I think we just got to get better at that as, as, yeah. as sales folks. And I think more importantly, the managers have to be training people on, you know, it's not objection handling. Objection handling is very important, you know, and you have to know the difference between an objection and a no. 
they're not always the same. And so I think people just mm-hmm. think, okay, I'm going to just handle right. every no like an objection, and I'm going to go to my objection to handling 101 book and and answer this. And uh, then you typically wind up pissing the buyer off, which that's never a good road to success exactly. in selling. <laughs> Being a friend no, is not bad. Never and, a good uh, Better than, yeah. than pissing them off, for sure. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. Andy, we probably yes. we don't have time for this today, but maybe this is another time for us to come together. There's another concept in the book of never ever close. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Is, I, I wanted to get to know, that, we, but we are running out of time. Yeah, yeah. We will we will we'll come back on that one, or we'll do it. Big big advocate for that. Um, yeah. yeah I, oh yeah. Don't get me started on that one because yeah. I, I knew I knew that would get you started. People, yeah. SaaS sales leaders going to hiring closers. It's like, oh, come on. It's like, <laughs> let, let me ask you. Let me ask you. Why is that in your job description? I mean, and the blah, 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 blah. I said, so let me, let me ask you another question. Have you ever asked your buyers what they need from your sellers, what they need your sellers to be? And does the word, if you did, did the word closer ever come up? <laughs> yeah. No. Okay. Andy, thank Gentlemen, you so much. Gentlemen, this was great. We'll do it again. So um, people want to get in contact with you. What's the best way to do that? Yeah, for me, it's Paul at stripes.co is the easiest way to connect with me. Okay. Yep. And me, it's M as in Mark, V as in Vincent, Petruzzi, P-E-T-R-U-Z-Z-I at gmail.com. Perfect. All right. Thanks, Andy. Thank you. Cheers, guys. Awesome. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guests, Mark Petruzzi and Paul Melchior, for sharing their insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for your help with that. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Hey, sales strategists. At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales. We're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, We generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.